8. E many insects with which we need not desire to be too familiar, such as mosquitoes, fleas, wasps, and bees, but when a bug is harmless as well as beautiful, there is no reason why we should not treat it as a friend, who is afraid of a butterfly, and yet a butterfly is really just as much a bug as a beetle is. The fact is that the term bug is applied with a certain propriety to many insects which are not at all pleasant although the lightning bug is an exception, and we should therefore be very careful about giving what has grown to be a bad name to insects that do not deserve it, and should avoid treating such as if they were as ugly and disagreeable as the name would seem to imply. A bad lawn stilts in the year 1748 the great Marshal Saxe, who was traveling through the low countries, came to the town of Mimur in Belgium. There the citizens did everything in their power to make his stay pleasant and to do him honor, and among other things they got up a bad lawn stilts. These inhabitants of Mimur were well used to stilts, for their town, which has a river on each side of it, lay very low, and was subject to overflows, when the people were obliged to use stilts in order to walk about the streets. In this way they became very expert in the use of these slim, wooden legs and to make their stilts amusing as well as full they used to have stilt battles on all holidays and great occasions. The young men of the town, two or three hundred on each side, would then form themselves into opposing armies, and with flags flying and trumpets blowing they would advance to the attack, and they fought hard and well. It was against the rule to use any club or similar weapon, or to strike with the fists, punching with their elbows, to push each other down, and kicking with their stilts to knock their opponents' legs from under them, were the methods of assault in this kind of warfare. The battle often lasted for an hour or two, the armies fighting and shouting, advancing and retreating, while their wives and sisters stood around them, encouraging them by shouts and hand clapping, and when an unfortunate fellow was knocked down, these women would hasten to his assistance, and help him up again as soon as he had recovered from his fall. This was pretty rough sport for the combatants thought as if their lives and fortunes depended upon the victory, and although they did not often seriously injure one another, there must have been many a sore head and bruised leg and arm after the battle was over. Marshal Saxe knew all about fighting, and on this occasion he declared, that if two real armies should engage with as much fury as these young fellows on stilts, the battle would be a butchery. At another time, when the Archduke Albert came to Namur, the citizens had one of these stilt battles and it proved a very profitable one to them. Before the fight began, the governor of the city promised the archduke to show him a battle between two bodies of men, who would be neither on horseback nor on foot, and when the engagement was over, Albert was so much pleased that he gave the town the privilege of being forever exempt from the duties on beer, as the good folks of Mimur were nearly as good at drinking beer as they were at walking on stilts. This was a most valuable present for them. Things are different in this country. It is said that in 1859 a man walked across the rapids of the Niagara River on stilts, but I never heard of any of his taxes being remitted on that account, drawing the long bow, when a man has a bow and arrows as long as those used by some of the natives of Brazil, so that he has to lie down on his back, and hold the bow with his foot when he shoots, he may well be said to draw a long bow, but it is not of these people that I now intend to speak, without describing any particular school of archery. I merely wish to give a few instances where, the long bow, has been drawn in words, about feats with the bow and arrows. This expression, drawing the long bow, does not always mean that a falsehood has been told. It often refers to a very wonderful story, which may be true enough, 
but which is so marvelous that it requires a firm trust in the veracity of the narrator for us to believe it. So now let us see what long bows have been drawn about bows and arrows. Such stories commenced long ago. The poet Virgil, in the Aeneid, tells of four archers who were shooting for a prize, the mark being a pigeon, tied by a cord to the mast of a ship. The first man struck the mast with his arrow, the second cut the cord, and the third shot the pigeon while it was flying away. There now being nothing for the fourth archer to shoot at, he just drew his bow, and sent his arrow flying towards the sky with such velocity that the friction of the air set the feathers on fire, and it swept on, like a fiery meteor, until it disappeared in the clouds. It would be very hard, even in this progressive age, to beat that story. The Greeks could tell tall stories, too, of their archers. An historian, named Zosimus, tells of a man who shot, at the same time, three arrows from the same bow at three different targets, and hit them all. It is to be hoped that his histories contain some things easier to believe than this, but as we approach the present age we still find wonderful narrations about archers. Robin Hood, for instance, was a great fellow with the bow. It is said that on one occasion he shot an arrow so that it fell a mile from where he was standing, a long shot, and hard to be equaled by the crack rifles of the present day. Sir Walter Scott, in Ivanhoe, introduces Robin Hood under the name of Locksley, and in a shooting match, when his opponent had planted his arrow right in the center of the bullseye, and everybody, of course, thought that nothing better than that could be done. Master Robin just steps up and lets fly his arrow, driving it into the arrow that was sticking in the target, splitting it from end to end, and then there is that famous story about William Tell. Many persons had their doubts about this performance, and either assert that there never was such a person as Tell, or that no man could have confidence enough in his own skill to shoot at an apple on his son's head, but I prefer to believe this good old story, and, in fact, I see no good reason to doubt it. There was a Dane, named Folk, of whom the same story is told, and an Englishman, named William of Cloudesley, is said to have shot an apple from his son's head merely to show his expertness. Most of the stories of bows and arrows relate to the accurate aim of the archers, but here is one which shows the tremendous force by which an arrow may be propelled, if the bow is strong and long enough. A French gentleman named Blaise de General says that he saw a Turk, named Barbarossa, an admiral of a ship called the Grand Solomon, sent an arrow from his bow, right through a cannonball. He did not state whether the cannonball had a hole through it, or not, but I think that the most wonderful, astounding, and altogether amazing story about arrow shooting is told of the Indians who used to inhabit Florida. It is stated that these Indians were in the habit of assembling, in parties of ten or a dozen, for the purpose of having some amusement in archery. They would form themselves into a circle and one of them throwing an ear of maize or Indian corn into the air, the rest would shoot at it and would shell it of every grain of corn before it fell to the ground. Sometimes, the arrows would strike it so hard and fast that it would remain suspended in the air for several minutes, and the cob never fell until the very last grain had been shot from it. After such a specimen of the drawing of the long bow as this, it would not be well to introduce any feebler illustrations, and so I will keep the rest of my anecdotal arrows in my quiver. An ancient theater. I suppose you are all familiar with pictures of the Colosseum at Rome, but unless you have carefully studied detailed descriptions of this edifice, it is impossible for you to properly comprehend the grand style in which the ancients amused themselves. This great theater, the ruins of which are now standing in Rome, and which will probably stand for hundreds of years longer, 
was built nearly 1800 years ago. It is a vast oval building, four stories high, and capable of containing 90,000 spectators. Seats, one row above the other like steps, were placed around the walls, from top to bottom. There was no roof to the building, and if the sun was hot, or it rained, the people were obliged to shelter themselves as well as they could. Although it is probable that the seats for the emperors and other great dignitaries were protected by awnings, in the center of the building, down at the foot of the seats, was the great amphitheatre where the performances took place, and wonderful performances they were. There were sometimes great fights between lions, tigers, bulls, and bears, sometimes wild beasts were slain by men, and sometimes men were slain by wild beasts. There were gladiatorial combats, executions of criminals, and many other kinds of cruel and barbarous amusements. When the Colosseum was inaugurated, 5,000 wild beasts were put to death, and afterwards, at the celebration of a great victory, 11,000 animals perished, under the ground, in two vast basement stories. The beasts were kept in cages until they were brought up to destroy human life or to be butchered themselves. For 600 years these barbarous games were celebrated in the Colosseum, but it afterwards became a fortress, and it was used at one time for a hospital. When it began to decay, many of the inhabitants of Rome carried away portions of its materials to build houses for themselves, but such depredations have long been forbidden and now the Colosseum stands, useless and ruined, a silent memento of the wickedness of man. People are bad enough in our age, but the day is past when 90,000 men, women, and children could be gathered together to see other men, women, and children torn and devoured by lions and tigers. Let us hope, that by the time the Colosseum has entirely crumbled away, men will no longer meet in thousands to kill and mangle each other on the battlefield. Bird chat, in a far-off country, on a summer day, it chanced that two cormorants stood on a great rock, lazily dozing. This rock was by the side of a little river that, only a few miles below, float into the sea, for the cormorant is a marine bird, and haunts the sea coast. It was a lovely place, although not very far from the habitations of men, and a number of cows had laid themselves down in the grassy field that surrounded an old ruined temple on the gentle slope of a hill above the river. The day had been still and hot, but now a soft breeze was stirring the long grasses, and bending the tassels of the reeds gracefully over the water and the scent of flowers came floating down from the vines clambering over the old ruin, and the hum of insects filled the air, but I do not think the cormorants noticed any of these things, their long necks were folded so that their heads nearly rested on their backs, for, as I said before, they were dozing, the true and these birds had eaten so much they had made themselves perfectly stupid, which is a bad way the cormorant has, as, no doubt, you know, for it has probably happened to you sometime in your life to have indulged yourself so freely in eating something that you liked that you have been scornfully called a little cormorant. But the state of insensibility was passing away, and they were now in a gentle doze, and sleeping, thinking of the company they were to entertain. For these cormorants had come to the spot to meet their cousin the pelican to consult with him on some family matters. Upon their first arrival at the place they had set to a work to get together a good supply of fish for this is the only food of both the cormorant and the pelican. In a short time they landed a great number, and bestowed them in a safe place, and then they set to work catching fish for themselves and eating them giardily. You might suppose such a lazy-looking bird would find it impossible to catch anything so active as fish, but you should see it when it is fully awake and hungry. 
The bird darts through the water with a speed greater than that of the fishes. Its wings can be closed so tightly that they do not hinder its progress, and the tail serves for a rudder, while the broadly webbed feet act as paddles. Its long, snake-like neck gives it the power of darting its beak with great rapidity, and the hook at the end of the beak prevents the prey from escaping. The bird is also a diver, and can stay a long time underwater. Our two cormorants opened their eyes when they heard a slight splashing in the water. Something was about to invade their retreat. They had not long to await. Slowly into the stream waded a bittern. Seeing the cormorants there he stopped, and, drawing himself up into as small a compass as possible, he sunk his head in his shoulders, and nothing could be seen of his long neck, while his bill was thrust up in the air as if he cared nothing for his neighbors or their affairs. The cormorants heartily wished he would go away, and they kept their eyes open and watched him, for fear he would spy the fish they had carefully hidden in the wet grass, for the bittern also lives on fish. So the cormorants blinked and blinked, and thought how different the bitter looked when on the alert for his prey, or calling his mate. Many a time had they been roused out of their sleep by the terrible night cry of the bitter a fearful sound, something between the neighing of a horse, the bellow of a bull, and a shriek of savage laughter, and so loud and deep it seemed to shake the marshy ground. Soon there appeared hovering over them a snowy cloud. As it floated nearer it proved to be a magnificent pelican with its gigantic wings outspread. It alighted near the cormorants, at the foot of a little grassy hill. It was an old male bird, very wise and very cunning. He greeted his cousin cormorants cordially, but, ruffling up the crest of curled feathers on his head, and shaking his half-folded wings angrily, he looked askance at the bittern. Now the bittern is a very unsocial bird, and as he took not the least notice of the newcomer, the pelican could not pick a quarrel with him, therefore he turned to his cousins and said, I have just come from my pleasant home on a rocky island, the waters make music there all day long, and the green moss gleams through the white foam, and gay-colored fish sparkle in the sunlight, so that when men behold it they exclaim, see, what a beautiful spot, there are some birds that like dingy pools, where only coarse rushes grow, where there is nothing but blight and mildew, where even carrion crows will not fly, and at which men shudder, now this exactly described the places the bittern prefers to all others, but, as he really considered them very captivating, and hated the very sight of mankind, he did not feel abashed by the pelican's stinging rebuke, and perhaps took it for a compliment, and there is no knowing how long he would have stayed there, if the frisky little hoopoe had not chanced to alight on a tree that had fallen across a foaming brook not very far from the group of birds, not liking so much company, the bittern stalked away. The hoopoe nodded so often to the birds that its beautiful tall crest trembled as if a breeze stirred it, and having preened its prettily barred feathers for a while, it began to talk as fast as ever it could. I have came from a long distance, and only stopped twice on my way to get a meal of insects, which I can dig out of decaying wood with my long curved beak. Very fast, I can tell you. And what do you think I saw in that place I came from? You would never guess. Why? Men had some pet cormorants that they had trained to catch fish for them. Oh, it was fun. And I heard these men say that in the days of Charles I of England I hope you know who the island for I'm sure I don't. Cormorants were kept by nobles and kings for the purpose of catching fish. And that there was attached to the court an officer called the king's master of the cormorants. Did you ever hear the like of that? Although this was strictly true. The cormorants had never heard of it, but, before they could answer, aloud. Deep voice cried, Hail, what is all that? 
the startled birds turned towards the spot from whence the voice proceeded, and there, perched on a lonely rock, a good distance to the left of them, was a great bird with very large bright eyes and powerful curved beak. Neither the hoopoe nor pelican had ever before seen him, but the cormorants knew him very well. He was the peregrine falcon, and they knew him because, like them, he chose rocky ledges, high and inaccessible, for his nest, and although his nests were usually on loftier crags than theirs, they were quite neighborly, especially as they did not chase the same prey, the cormorants drawing theirs from the sea, and the falcons finding theirs in the air, those people you speak of, said he sternly to the frightened hoopoe, may have had cormorants to catch their fish, but I never heard of it before, whereas all history is full of the exploits of my ancestors, and monarchs and nobles spent immense fortunes in buying and keeping falcons that hunted birds grandly, now the hoopoe knew very well that it was not this falcon, but the great Jerfalcon, his cousin, that was formerly held in such high esteem, but he did not dare to say so, and, as he must be saying something, he turned to the pelican, I have long wanted to meet with you to ask you if it's true that you tear open your breast with your hooked bill, and feed your young with your own blood, not a word of truth in it, replied the pelican scornfully, I am often obliged to gather food in places far from home, I do not dive into the water like the cormorant, but catch, with a sidelong snatch of my bill, the fish that rise to the surface, this loose skin, that is now so folded up under my beak that you can scarcely see it, I can distend into an enormous pouch, this I fill with fish, and my wings being wide and powerful, I can easily carry a great weight of fish through the air, when I reach home I feed my young by pressing my beak against my breast, and thus forcing out the enclosed fish, and on the tip of my beak is a little curved look as red as a drop of blood, and now you know the whole story, thank you, said the hoopoe, I must go and tell the storks all about it, and away he darted like a streak of colored light, the falcon, too, lazily spread out his large wings, and soared majestically up into the air, leaving the pelican and cormorants to discuss their family affairs and their dinner in peace, mummies, a mummy is not a very pretty thing to look at, but, considered properly, it is certainly interesting, that stiff form, wrapped up tightly in ever so many dirty cloths, with a black shriveled face which looks as if it had been cut out of a piece of wood and then smoked, was once, no doubt, a very pleasant person to know, if it was a woman, it played with the children, so a little, perhaps, complained of the heat, and went to parties, if it was a man, it probably whistled a little, and sang, settled up its accounts, was fond of horses, and took an interest in the vegetable garden, most of the mummies that had been brought from Egypt to this country were originally kings, princes, princesses, noblemen, and priests, for few but those high-born folks could afford to be so well preserved as to last all this time, but it is very certain that none of them ever imagined that, thousands of years after their death, they would be carried away to countries never heard of in their day, and be gazed at by people who wore chignons and high-top hats, and who were not born until they had been dead three thousand years. When we consider the care and skill with which the dead Egyptians used to be embalmed and encased in their sarcophagi, it is not surprising that their poor bodies have been so well preserved, that the head of this article you see a mummy as it appears when it has been embalmed and wrapped in its bandages, here is the stand on which it is then placed, very often, when the body had been a king or some great personage, its face was covered with a mask of thin gold, and its bandages were ornamented with pictures and inscriptions. When this work of decoration was completed, it was placed in a coffin which was made large enough to hold the stand. 
this coffin was very handsomely ornament, and then, in order to make everything very secure indeed, it was enclosed in another or exterior coffin, which was also decorated in the highest style known to Egyptian artists. One would now suppose that this great king or priest was safe enough, looking at the matter in an ordinary light, but the Egyptians did not look at these matters in ordinary lights, quite otherwise. They intended the useless bodies of their grandees to be packed away so that they should not be disturbed as long as the world lasted, little dreaming of the Americans and Europeans who would come along, in a few thousand years, and buy them for their museums, so they put the mummy, with its stand and its two coffins, into a great stone box called a sarcophagus, and this was fastened and plastered up so as to seem like one solid rock. Then, if the inmate had ever done anything wonderful or sometimes, no doubt, if he had not been famous for anything in particular, the history of his great achievements, real or fancied, was sculptured on the stone. These hieroglyphics have been deciphered in several instances, and we have learned from them a great deal of Egyptian history. Dead poor people, as well as kings and princes, were made into mummies in Egypt, but they were not preserved by such costly means as those I have mentioned, after they had been embalmed. They were wrapped up as well as the means of their relatives would allow, and were placed in tombs and vaults, sometimes with but one coffin, and sometimes without any. In many cases the mummy was not buried at all, but kept in the house of the family, so that the friends and relatives could always have it with them. This may have been very consoling to the ancient Egyptians, but to us it seems a truly mournful custom, and it is by no means distressing to think that though the people who may be in this country 3,000 years hence may possibly find some of our monuments, they will discover none of our bodies. Tame snakes. We have often heard of the tame snakes belonging to the serpent charmers of India and Africa, but it is seldom that the harmless serpents of civilized countries have been domesticated. But the common snake, sometimes called the garter snake, which harmlessly shows its dark green and yellow colors among the grass and bushes, has been tamed and has shown quite a fair amount of respect and affection for its human friends. A French writer relates that he knew a lady who had a snake which was so tame that it came when it was called, followed its mistress about, climbed up into her lap, and gave many signs of knowing and liking her. It would even swim after her when she threw it into the water from a boat, but this last feat proved fatal to it, for once swimming thus and endeavoring to keep up with the boat, the tide became too strong for it and it was carried away and drowned. I am very much afraid that that lady did not deserve even as much affection as the snake gave her. The boys and girls in France sometimes amuse themselves by getting up a snake team. They tie strings to the tails of two common harmless snakes, and then they drive them about, using a whip I hope gently to make these strange steeds keep together and go along lively. It is said that snakes which have been played with in this way soon begin to like their new life and will allow the children to do what they please with them, showing all the time the most amiable disposition. There is nothing very strange in a tame snake. Toads, tortoises, spiders, and many other unpromising animals have been known to show a capacity for human companionship, and to become quite tame and friendly. In fact, there are very few animals in the world that cannot be tamed by man, if man is but kind enough and patient enough. Gymnastics Everyone who has a body that is worth anything at all, ought to do his best to keep it in good order, and there is no better way of attaining this desirable object than by a proper course of gymnastics, and to know just what is proper for certain ages and certain individuals, demands a great deal of thought and judgment, improper gymnastics are much worse than done, 
we can generally, however, find those who are able to advise us in regard to the exercise one ought to take. This necessity of training the body as well as the mind has been recognized from the earliest ages, and the ancient Greeks and Romans paid as much attention to their gymnasiums as they did to their academies, and from their youth. Their boys and girls were taught those exercises which develop the muscles and ensure good health. Some of their methods, however, were not exactly the most praiseworthy. For instance, they would encourage their youngsters to fight. This engraving, copied from an ancient picture, shows how spiritedly the children practice this exercise. It would have been better if the individual with the stick had laid it over the backs of the young combatants, instead of using it to direct their struggles. There are three kinds of gymnastics. By the first we take exercise, simply for the sake of the good we gain from it, by the second we combine pleasure with our muscular exertion, and the third kind of gymnastics is practiced for the sake of making money. The exercises of the first division are carried on in regular gymnasiums or at home, and consist of exercises with dumbbells, bars, suspended rings, poles, and many other appliances with which most boys and girls are familiar. Regular practice in a good gymnasium under the direction of a competent teacher, is considered, by those who best understand the education of young people, an exceedingly necessary part of their education, and gymnastic instruction, both for boys and girls, is becoming more popular every year. We need give but little time to this well-understood division of gymnastics, but we'll pass at once to the second class, where diversion and exercise are combined. This is by far the best method of gaining health and strength and should be preferred by all instructors whenever it is possible to adopt it. It is of no use to say anything in favor of this plan to the boys and girls themselves, for they never fail to choose that form of exercise which has a good deal of play in it, and it is well they like it, for they will get more benefits from an hour of good, vigorous play, than from many lessons in the monotonous exercises in use in the gymnasiums. I shall not now speak of the lively games of boys and girls by which their cheeks grow rosy and their legs and arms grow strong, for we all know enough about them, but I will describe some of the athletic sports of grown-up folks. There are a great many of these, some of which are of great antiquity, wrestling, boxing, vaulting, foot racing, and similar exercises have been popular for thousands of years, and are carried on now with the same spirit as of old. Outdoor sports differ very much in different countries. In the United States the Great Game Island at present, baseball, in England cricket is preferred, and Scotland has athletic amusements peculiar to itself in the latter country a very popular game among the strong folks is called, throwing the hammer. These hammers are not exactly what their name implies, being heavy balls of brass or iron, fitted to a long handle. The hammer is whirled around the head several times and then thrown as far as possible. The man who throws it to the greatest distance wins the game. Another game, very much of this order, consists in tossing a heavy stone, instead of a hammer. The Scotch call this game, putting the stone, sometimes using stones that might be called young rocks, and they, put, or throw them in a different way from the people of other countries where the game is popular. In some of the mountainous regions of the continent of Europe the game is played in the manner shown in the accompanying engraving, but it is impossible, in a short article like this even to allude to all the different kinds of athletic games, and I will now notice some of the gymnastics by which people make a living. Rope walkers, circus riders, and acrobats of every kind are now so common, that a description of their ordinary performances is unnecessary. They are found on every portion of the globe, 
some of the most proficient being now seen in China and Japan. If any of you have seen the Japanese troop of acrobats with which Little Alright was connected, you will understand to allow a high state of perfection physical exercises may be brought by people who give up their whole lives to the study and practice of their various feats. In Europe and this country very remarkable gymnastic performers had appeared before the public. About the middle of the last century, there lived in Derby, England, a man by the name of Thomas Totham, who performed in public some wonderful feats of strength. At one time he lifted, by a band passade over his shoulders, three great casks of water which collectively weighed 1.836 pounds. He had a platform built for this performance, which was constructed in such a way that he could use the whole power of his body and limbs, in this feat. However, he has been surpassed by Dr. Winship, of Boston, who has lifted, in public, heavier weights than Totham ever attempted. The latter, however, was enormously strong and performed a great many feats which made him quite famous throughout England. A favorite exhibition of public acrobats is that of pyramids, pillars, and other tall edifices, built of men, instead of bricks and stones. The Venetians used to be very expert and artistic in their arrangement of these exhibitions, and the men composing the human edifice stood as immovably and gracefully as if they had been carved out of solid stone, instead of being formed of flesh and blood. This performance has been made quite common in late years, and I have seen the celebrated Arabs and other acrobats pile themselves up in the most astonishing manner. One of the most popular, and at the same time dangerous, of all public gymnastic exhibitions, is that of rope walking, and most marvelous feats on the tightrope have been performed in many parts of the world, even in Greece and Rome. Men practice this form of gymnastics, in later days no one has become. 